1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Muck bringing you the food you love. Muck brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, we have a win to talk about today. Just, just. Although, if you'd said to me on seventy minutes um, whether whether I felt nervous when after John Swift took that penalty away, I absolutely did not. I thought we were cruising towards a victory. It was like, it was very, uh, you've heard the expression, a game of two halves. I've never had a game of 70 and then 20 minutes before, but that's absolutely what we got yesterday. Albion in real control for 70 minutes and then 20 minutes of absolute and utter carnage. And Pete, I mean, we've just had a chat off air about how we're going to approach this. I think we've almost got to talk about them individually as two separate portions of the same game. So, I think we need to start off by talking about the, the first 70 minutes where Albion were largely in control. Um, people have been saying things like, you know, we didn't create a lot, and that's absolutely true. But we, Corbram went into the game without um, without a recognised number nine, Brandon Thomas Asante picking up what I understand to be a, a small knock which has kept him out of this game, but hopefully won't be too long-term Um Prior to the match. So he was unavailable. Major, it had already been said, was not fit enough to start. So we effectively started the game with two tens, Phillips and Swift, in that position, which limited the ways in which we could attack. But for me, that first 70 minutes, Pete, was a tactical masterclass from Corbran. He went to three centre halves. He matched up against Swansea. And we completely and utterly nullified their their attack they didn't have a single chance in the first half that had higher than 0.08 xg they only had one effort prior to that completely mad last 20 minutes that had higher than 0.08 xg which uh, which was uh, when Yates hit the post they really really didn't threaten us at any and we just made the absolute utmost of our set pieces scored three goals from 1.5 XG overall. So basically doubled our XG, which is a level of efficiency. You just don't really see from Albion, but when you completely suffocate the opposition for 70 minutes, as we did, it gi- it gives you that freedom really, doesn't it? Because anything you get at the other end is going to give you a leg up on them. Unfortunately for once, Albion were largely efficient. I mean, obviously the second goal carries a great deal of luck. It's, uh, it's hit the goalkeeper on the back of the head and, uh, and gone in the net. But nonetheless, it's a training ground routine from a set piece, which we've picked Furlong out. He's got the flick on. It's gone onto the, on, on, uh, it's gone onto the woodwork and then come back onto the goalkeeper. The, the first one is just keeping the ball brilliantly alive. And then the third one's obviously a penalty. We were just really, really efficient. We we suffocated them at the other end. And for 70 minutes, Pete, and I do emphasize for 70 minutes, because for the last 20 minutes, this does not apply. For 70 minutes, it was almost the quintessential Carlos Corbran tactical masterclass of a performance. It was the kind of performance that probably he dreams of. I I think he just probably wishes it could have gone on for 20 minutes longer.
0: Yeah, we nullified them. They didn't really create much in terms of chances. I mean, we didn't really create a lot in open play either. Um, But like you say, we are missing a recognised number nine. Um, It was largely a game of set pieces. Um, If you look at the the expected goals for both sides in the game, there was a total of 3.88 and 80% of that came from set pieces or or the penalties. So.
2: We, we refused opportunities, though, in open play to put the ball into the box for fairly obvious reasons, Pete. I mean, I, I agree with you. We didn't create a lot from open play, but that's not to say we didn't get into good positions. We did. It's just the problem was you've got Matt Phillips picking the ball up in a wide left area, and he's looking up into the middle and he's going, oh, hang on, I'm supposed to be the bloke in there, so there's absolutely nobody for me to cross to. And we obviously turned those... Opportunities down and recycled the ball in those positions. I felt we got into good areas in open play. It wasn't like it wasn't like we were sat on our halfway line or anything. It's just when we got into what would normally be a good area if we had someone like DK or even Thomas Asante in the middle, we had to refuse the opportunities, didn't we?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I suppose the other aspect of that is that you know we got quite an early goal, so we were kind of in the driving seat then, and we didn't. Well, yeah, we didn't have the pressure um of having to create chances as much as we did of having to just control the ball and, and keep possession. And I mean for that entire first half especially we we control control possession. Um you know, if you look at the the kind of momentum of the game we, we had the vast majority of the momentum in that first half. I think Swansea only had a bit in the you know, about the twenty fifth minute. But apart from that it was all Albion, so after getting that first goal, you know you you can be happy with just keeping the ball and and controlling the game. You don't have to rush and take risks to to score that second goal. Luckily, we did get another goal just after half time and and I suppose that kind of even enhanced that a bit more that we weren't rushing to score any more goals. It was can we control the game and maybe we took took our foot off the gas a little bit and made some substitutions that you know didn't have a positive impact but
2: do you see it as taking the foot off the gas or do you see it as almost Corbram being a little bit scarred by how many um injuries he ended last season with and also Corbrand being very aware of how thin his squad is i mean some of the players who played yesterday had played against um uh, had played against Stoke as well i mean he's already lost Brandon Thomas Asante between Stoke and Swansea i mean one injury is verging on a crisis for this, for this squad whilst, and as I say, we'll come on to talk about the last 20 minutes in some depth shortly, but whilst it didn't work bringing those players off without any shadow of a doubt, because and we do have to give some credit to Swansea as well, Pete, because whilst us bringing players off hurt us, then bringing Charlie Patino on definitely changed the game for them as well. But it, whilst those substitutions didn't work, you can understand why he did them because he's between a rock and a hard place at the moment, isn't he? With in considering the depth of the squad.
0: Yeah, I suppose calling it taking the foot off the gas is probably a bit unfair. Um Yeah, I suppose it's probably more protecting players from injury. Um And when you're three it up, you can and have been in pretty much control of the game. You've you've nullified their attack. You can kind of feel comfortable with making. A few substitutions and, and taking off a few players. Um, again, they didn't really create too much in open play after the substitutions, but they had a lot more of the ball. They were a lot more dominant and had the could get set pieces and, and create from there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a nervous last twenty minutes, and we probably should have won the game a bit more comfortable than we did. But it was never a, a, a terrible performance, I didn't think.
2: Oh god, no, no, no! Uh, I mean, nervous is an understatement, though, Pete. I think the bloke who sits, the poor bloke who sits in front of me in the Brummy Road end, I think has gone deaf from how much I screamed at them in 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 that last sort of fifteen twenty minutes. But as I say, we'll come to that. Let's um let let's start with the positives, though, and let's be fair. The positives encompass the vast majority of the game. As I say, we we're very much in control for the first seventy minutes, and as you say, we did get an early goal. Now, there's a few things on this. First thing to say is just nice to see the furlong throw being a weapon again. I mean, it should be. It should be with the players we had starting the game. You know, we obviously had Kipre and Ajay in in the side. We also had Peters going forward for for set plays as well. You you add to that the fact that you've got your Koslu in there. Also, um, Matt Phillips isn't the shortest bloke in in the world, and 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 Townsend as well wins. I think this goes unnoticed. Townsend's aerial numbers are brilliant. Townsend is fantastic in the air, and I don't think people realise or acknowledge that anywhere near enough. And there was a few factors for this. First of all, it's nice to see the throwing going in and causing a team problems. But it's the way we kept it alive that I was really impressed with, because this is something that you and I have talked about really since we started doing this podcast, that Albion should be more of a threat from set plays. Over the last two years, we should have been more of a threat from set plays than we have been. You've looked at the players that we've had putting balls into the box, whether it's Matt Phillips, Alex Moat, John Swift, Jed Wallace, even Connor Townsend. You've got good delivery coming in. And actually, when you've looked at the numbers over the uh, over the and then you you add on to that, the fact we've got this booming long throw from Furlong when we want to use it. And then you look at the numbers and actually the expected threat isn't too bad from our set plays. But the way we've attacked them has been really, really poor, except for really when Bartley's been on the pitch y- yesterday when that throwing comes in. They do get the header away to the edge of the box. But what's brilliant is, again, an aspect of John Swift's game that I don't think he gets enough credit for. He powerfully gets up on the edge of the box and wins that header over the player on the edge of the penalty area. And then Connor Townsend with just the calmness to nod that down. For Semi Ajayi, who, let's be fair, finishes that beautifully. Obviously has got a thing about smashing them in on the volley against Swansea, because he did exactly the same thing. I mean, it was a better finish to be fair at Swansea on the final day of the season, but nonetheless it was similar um from a set piece that got that got nodded down to him. It's just the sort of goal I feel we should score more often, Pete, I think is the point I'm labouring towards.
0: Yeah, but then I suppose, you know, set piece goals don't come on come around very often. I think I've seen before that, you know, corners have scored about one in every, I think it was one in every hundred or something stupid like that. But um, yeah, you, you do have to have a bit of patience. Unless Tony with
2: Pulis is your manager.
0: Well, yeah, I think that was part <laughs> of what of what I read about it was that we, when we had him in, we were scoring a lot more than what the average was. Yeah, and you do tend to have to be quite patient with them, and just, you're going to have a lot where you put it into the box and you think, oh, we're terrible at set pieces. Um, we're never going to score. It's just kind of how set pieces are that, you know, if, if you score from every set piece, football will be a much higher scoring game than it is. So you have to have that patience and, and trust and just kind of keep persevering with it. And if you do the, you know, the basics that you tap the ball, you, you stay alive for the second balls and just kind of keep the ball in play, then you keep doing that. Then eventually it's going to drop to, to one of your players perfectly. And maybe the routine is going to come off perfectly and you're going to create a really good chance and score a goal. Uh, so obviously furlongs throws is, is a weapon. Um, I don't know how much we're going to be able to see it this season. Um, I think could struggle with it, especially in the winter months. If, if the ball's getting really wet and the pitch is wet, then, you know, without the towel, I don't know how well he's going to be able to grip it to throw it that far. But yeah, whilst we can use it, it, it definitely is a weapon. And yeah, if we can attack it well and, and keep the ball alive, like we did against Swansea, then, then you're going to create chances from it. I think the corner routine that was. Quite nicely worked. Um, There wasn't a lot to it, but Furlong got a good shot off in a good location. Um,
2: Yeah. Does that just because it's ended up pinballing around and going in off the back of the goalkeeper, which you know, without uh, without any shadow of a doubt, is an element of luck. Do you think that gets understated? That that is it's a routine that has been worked on on the training ground. John Swift was making very clear signals every time he went over it was two arms in the air it was chucked the ball up twice. They'd obviously got three or four maybe even slightly more than that different routines that he was that he was working his way through and that was one you know that was um furlong to run from deep towards the edge of uh, towards the the near post swift to dr- drill in a relatively low ball and furlong to try and flick it towards uh, towards the goal and okay we've had some luck with the way it's pinballed, but nonetheless that goal doesn't come off at all without that work on the on the training ground from both corbran but also from the players executing it?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I think Opta had the, the value, the XG value of it as 0.07. So you're not going to score from every time you, you do that routine. But if you do get it right and you create a, a chance of 0.07, then it's a, a reasonably good chance to have from a corner. Um, so, yeah, you, you're obviously you need an ele- element of luck and it's not going to go in every time. But to be able to create that chance from a corner is is the promising thing um, and obviously a bit of work has gone into into that routine on the training ground to, to be able to create the chance um, so yeah I think that's that's more the positive that you've got to take rather you, you can kind of forget about the finish um, like I say if you had that shot a hundred times then you know the XG suggests he you would only score it about about seven times so you can kind of forget about the finish and the, and the lot that we had from that but take the positives from actually being able to create that chance from a routine
2: I mean, part of the lesson from yesterday seems to be from both sides, seems to be if you can create carnage from set plays, then it seems to it seems to benefit the attacking team. We did that with with that goal. We also created a lot of panic in the penalty area from from the long throw. And then late in the game, they created panic on panic. I mean, you look at their second goal. There's no finesse to it i mean it's literally just keeping the ball alive and uh, and somebody forcing it over the line with their body like it, it the, the the lesson seems to be that good set piece teams Okay, you know it's always nice to maybe get that for, that uh, you know lovely delivered ball towards the near post where the player gets the run flick header into the that lovely just beautifully curves into the far corner. but the reason we admire those goals so much is they happen so infrequently. the majority of set piece goals pete are scrappy, and I thought actually Albion earlier on in the game made the most of scrappy opportunities um, and kept the, but more importantly, were more determined with, than their opponents in the penalty area and kept the ball alive. And I thought late on in the game, Swansea did that.
0: There was elements of, um, of Valeria and Ishmael's time at the Albion from the, the set pieces really, wasn't there? That just, if you can create chaos in the box and then a lot of it will come down to determination and who actually wants to to win the, individual aerial jewels more and who can get up for it and just keep the ball alive. You know, if Swansea could have got up for for one of the headers in the Ajayi goal then and won the header then, it probably wouldn't have happened. But both Swift, Swift and Townsend climbed really well um, and the chaos went in our favour and we got the goal. Um, and then, you know, in the second half, it was probably dropping in their favour a little bit more, um, by the furlong goal slash own goal. But yeah, if you can create that chaos in the box and and have players that are determined to to get onto the ball and win the ball then it puts you in quite a good stead to to create chances from it even if it's not you know as pristine as the the set piece routine might have been on the training ground
2: Absolutely, it seemed it it seems like um, it, it was a victory for determination and wanting it more, which is something we've we we've had a bit of a go at these players for in the past, and it was nice to see, certainly for seventy minutes anyway, certainly uh, us win that particular battle. Before we go on to talk about the third uh, the third goal and uh, and within it talk about Swift and Townsend, Pete, I want to just dwell on Darnell Furlong for a moment because. We sort of, we briefly highlighted him after Blackburn that, and we also highlighted him, um, after the Burton game, saying that, you know, he'd, he'd had a bit of a different role. He was a bit more tucked in. Um, and then at Blackburn, I I said, I thought he was one of our better players. I thought he was excellent yesterday. A, A different role again, an out and out wing back. But you look at, you look at the data for him and, he he had um, he, he had the highest progressive distance out of any player. So he he moved the ball forward further than any other player. He had the most touches of any Albion player in the final third. Now that's staggering, really, for a right back, even a right wing back. That's still that that's still pretty pretty impressive. Um, he 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 had a lot of completed dribbles. I just thought. I, I, f- I feel like at the moment, Furlong has come on this season. I just have one gripe with him, and it comes back to my preseason predictions. If you remember, you've gone with Malumbi for most bookings. I've gone with um, I- I've gone with Darnell Furlong. Well, I I want to lose that bet, Pete. I want I want to lose that element of our preseason predictions because I want Darn. I feel like Darnell Furlong has got. Jason Mulumby syndrome from two years ago, where we sat on this very podcast and we said the big problem with Jason Molumby is he doesn't know when to use his booking. Jason uh, a booking in football is basically a free hit. That's certainly the way really good players who are great at the dark arts, like your John Terry's of years gone by, used to treat it. It is something to be saved for when you need to haul a player down. And you take the yellow card and you accept it's a free foul. That's As long as you don't overstep the mark into red, it's a free foul. That's what a booking is. It's to be used once a game as that, if you need to. Darnell Furlong yesterday got booked in the first half for jumping into somebody in the centre circle. That is not where you use your yellow card. And then there was a couple of situations in the second half where... I think one, Mulumbi had to get across and drag the player down. And the other one, I think, um Yukoslu stepped in and bailed him out and got the ball back. Both times, Furlong just had to let the player run past him because he was on a yellow and he couldn't afford to bring them down. This is not a criticism. I'm not having a wider criticism of Darnell Furlong because I, whilst I've been unconvinced by him, largely for the last two seasons I think what I'm seeing in the first two games from Furlong and long may it continue I think there's an awful lot to like about his game I think he looks a much much better player at the start of this season than he did at the end of last but he's got to get that that silly booking out of his system Pete he's got to stop that because it's it, it's going to cost him. He's either going to cost us a goal because he can't stop a player going forward, or it's going to cost him his place on the pitch because he's going to get sent off. I actually think he's doing an awful lot right in most other aspects of his game, but that is one area he's got to fix for me.
0: Like you said, it was a big issue that we had with Malumbi, um a couple of seasons back now, um, and he seems to have kind of lost that. He's still got his... His energy and his aggression, but he he doesn't get booked anywhere near as much as he used to, or at least it seems that way, and it, he definitely doesn't get sent off as much.
2: Um well he, he doesn't get booked as much. And and it's it's a good point you make there, Pete, because it's also worth saying. When I say he's got to get booked less, that doesn't that doesn't mean be less combative or make less tackles, does it? Because Malumbi has proved you can be you can be just as energetic and combative and uh, without getting so many silly yellows.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, a couple of seasons ago, we had Valera Ishmael in charge, and you can probably assume that that had some impact in the number of bookings and red cards that Mulumbi was getting because he wasn't the only one that was getting red cards in, in that period. But yeah, since Mulumbi seems to have... Um, well, not calmed down, because like you say, he's still getting about and still sharing that aggression, but he's just probably been a bit more intelligent about it. So... Um, hopefully Furlong can, can have a similar, a similar development that he can still be aggressive and try and win the ball, but he just doesn't, doesn't give away fouls that will force the referee to book him as much. Because, like you say, if you're a fullback on a yellow card, then it makes your game a lot more difficult, especially if you're coming up against wingers that are going to want to try and take you on, um, regularly. So.
2: What do you think about the bigger picture with Furlong? What 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 are you seeing in the numbers from how he's playing this this season? Because he he has he's jumped off the page uh, both. Uh, whilst I'm watching, this is not because all the time I have to deal with the same tweet. Or uh, I don't care what the data says. I I watch games with my eyes. I watch games with my eyes as well. I go every week. I just look at the numbers as well. And it's not just the numbers that are impressing me with Furlong. It's what I'm seeing. Over the course of the ninety, I, I I'm I think he's come on this season. What do you think?
0: Uh, to be fair, I've always been a fan of his. Um, I think probably the at least what I see a lot of is that a lot of Albion fans don't think he's good enough. Um, but yeah, I've I tended to sway in the opposite direction. I think he's quite a good full-back for, especially in the Championship, and he seems to seems to have come on quite well under Corbrand as well. Um, and he's been asked to do. Multiple roles. Um, obviously he played win-back the other day and was playing quite wide. He's also more towards the end of last season. He was coming inside quite a lot and playing almost inverted, and he was doing that pre season as well and, and looked quite good from it. Um, so to have that ability to to play different roles is obviously important, um, and helps us set up for, for games. And you can actually kind of set up your side depending on who you're playing rather than having players that are just. They can only play one role, can only play in one way, so you're always going to set up the same no matter who you play against um, and you can't exploit weaknesses of the opposition as much. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of that, he's good. I mean, against Swansea, he, was, he had our second highest expected threat um, behind John Swift, so he was moving the ball into to dangerous areas. I think he had the, the joint highest number of progressive passes, so he was moving the ball forward as well. Yeah, I mean, he's got, he's got his other strengths as well. He's obviously very good in the air for a full which is quite useful especially when um at least against Blackburn we we're playing playing quite direct um so yeah I, I'm I'm personally happy with him as our right back option um I think I said that in the in our preview pods and I think we obviously need someone to cover him but I don't think we need to to prioritize bringing in somebody who's going to come straight to the starting 11 and displace furlong from his from his spot
2: moving inside whilst we're talking about defenders Pete and obviously there was a switch to three center halves we've largely seen two center backs during Corbrand's reign but he he went with uh, three center backs at Stoke and he he continued that um against uh, against Swansea on Saturday. Now, it was it was interesting the the comments that Corbrand has made over the course of the week where he's he he actually said that um he feels the players need to be able to play multiple systems, switch systems with within games rather uh, rather seamlessly, switch systems between games seamlessly and I think there was something of a concern of are we able to do that? Because we played a different system against, uh, against Blackburn. We played without an obvious number 10. Malumbi played in the eight as an advancing midfielder, but we're very much used to playing with that one player tucked in behind, um, the center forward, which is normally John Swift. Wallace was asked to play much narrower than he, than he usually does. So we had a much narrower midfield. It was a change of system and we didn't seem to cope with it, especially well. Um, we changed the system for uh, again against stoke and looked a bit of a mess from all accounts i wasn't at the game i'll openly admit that but i've spoke to people who were i've seen uh, i've seen the goals they don't make for pretty viewing and we, again it looked like another one can these players cope with the level of tactical flexibility that corbran wants from them i think they showed on saturday that they can because I mean we coped with the three at the back we coped with the fact that we we had um we, we had two tens in there as well I thought the work rate of Matt Phillips was absolutely tremendous even if he didn't offer that much in terms of threat I thought the way he he came back in took back in especially when we were ahead and closed that space down was brilliant but I was really impressed with the three centre halves who I I have to you know anybody who listens to this pod regularly will know I've been I haven't had a chance to be critical of Peters yet this season because he's barely played, but I've been pretty critical of Ajayi and Kipre. Kipre, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, cards on the table, I'm still not convinced about. I still think I every time I watch Kipre, I feel like there's a mistake. And he showed that towards the end of the game with just... Massively overplaying a back pass to, uh, to, um, Palmer, which resulted in a corner, which might not sound like that big a deal, but we looked like we were going to con- concede a goal every time we conceded a corner towards the end of that game. So conceding a corner was akin to conceding a goal at that point in time. And they did nearly score from that corner. So. I, I do have my worries still about Kipre. I feel like there's a mentality issue there with him, where he's got to find a way to focus uh, for 90 minutes. Because the Kipre had a very good game for a long for long periods yesterday, but the problem is you switch off for just a moment, and it can cost your team the game. And that back pass could have cost us the game. So he's got to keep that mentality. But he was so much improved in a three. He looked so much more secure. He was able to, he he had the best pass uh, completion percentage of any Albion player, which is a massive, massive uplift on last week when he was so poor in that area because he had more options around him. He wasn't trying to play that difficult ball through into midfield, which cost us the second goal against Blackburn. So he looked so much more secure. And he was the deepest one of those three. Peter's, I think, is just a steadying arm. He had to come off when he when he did because we were getting so threatened in the air. We needed Bartley's aerial ability, but the standout for me, Pete, was was Semi Ajayi, who I just thought was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I thought he was he was tremendous. He it, he won the most tackles. He had the equal most clearances. I just thought he was a rock. In everything that he did, yeah, he was part of the carnage that happened towards the end. But um, I, I didn't. I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's, it's quite hard to pick the bones out of uh, out of uh, some of the chances towards the end. To be honest, when you look back at them, but with the Jai, I thought, um, I, I just thought he was steady as you like all the way through. And I thought the shape suited us better with three centre halves. I think it suits the centre halves we've got. I think when we had O'Shea. Four at the back was perfectly reasonable, and without talking too much about a player who's gone, I think you see why if you watch the Man City game at the at the um, the the other night. His one-on-one defending with Harland um, was was decent. He wasn't at fault for any of the games. I th- uh, goals I thought uh, Bayers uh, Haaland pulled off and and targeted Bayers and. I think the uh, uh, and and you look at the way he, he's fitted into the way Burnley want to play out from the back and he was comfortable with that. I think when he when you've got a player like that there, you can play two centre halves. The fact that we, we play three centre halves is horses for courses for me, because I just don't think we've got we've got centre halves at the moment who are suited to a two centre back system. Not the way Corbram wants to play it anyway. What do you think?
0: Well, I think it was quite interesting because, um, I mean, if you look at the passing network from the game, it, the shape is largely still, it's very similar to a back four. Peters pushing up um, and wide on the, the left-hand side of the three centre-backs. Um, you know, he was almost level with Furlong's average position and, and Townsend's average position was actually um, higher than Jed Wallace's on the other side and it was actually inside of Eric Peters's. It was narrower than Eric Peters. On the left. So if you look at that, then um, you could be excused for thinking the actual formation with the ball was more of a a 4 2 4 or a 4 2 3 1, um, with Townsend as the the left winger and then Matt Phillips and John Swift as the strikers or one of them as the number 10. Um, So despite the formation, I think the kind of ideas in possession were still very similar um, in terms of shape to what we have been doing with a four two three one. Um
2: is that an important point to emphasise, Pete, that just because you play three to ten to halves doesn't make it a defensive formation.
0: Oh absolutely. Um because well we know that Connor Townsend likes to get forward anyway when um even when he's playing as in a back four as a left back, he likes to, to get past his winger and, and drive into the box. Um and towards towards that byline. Eric Peters is, you know, he's spent most of his career playing as a left-back. Um, so I think, I mean, even last season when we were playing with the back four, he would quite often drift out um, into those left-back areas and and have Dara in the middle and then either Furlong playing as the full-back or, the, or maybe Mullumby rotating in. So I think Peter's always going to drift out to that left-hand side and play out there and it suits him. So even with it being a back three... Um, I think when we've actually got the ball, it's it doesn't necessarily look exactly like a back throw, and It doesn't look too different to what it would look like in terms of pure shape, as to when we've you know it looks very similar to when we play the four-two-three-one. So yeah, I mean it's I think it's important to differentiate between kind of in possession shape and out of possession shape because obviously out of possession we did drop into into more of a back three, back five. So. Yeah, we can still have the same ideas and same kind of style, but
2: but that goes back to determination and commitment from the players, Pete. Because uh, because if it it, I mean, you 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 heard Corbran after the after the Blackburn game straight away he he got asked what he thought of Jeremy Sarmiento, and he said, "Look, he looked good coming forward, but when he lost the ball." He didn't seem to have that fitness and energy to get back into in, into his defensive shape, and Corbrand is only going to play players. He, he's not doesn't want them to do one or the other. He wants them to fly forward when he wants them to fly forward. But as soon as the play breaks down, he wants them to get back into shape, and that simply comes down to having players who are fit enough and have the mental desire enough to play the system.
0: Yeah, of course. You're not just you're not just an attacker or a defender. Um you've got to do both sides of the game and Corbrand demands it a lot from his wingers wingers as well to to get back and support the fullback. So um yeah, hopefully I mean um hopefully the Sarmiento thing was more of a, a match fitness rather than just a willingness or an unwillingness to, to get back and defend. Um but yeah, you I mean I was watching uh, Newcastle Thrash Villa yesterday, um and Harvey you Barnes
2: once just... a baggy, always a baggy.
0: Well, exactly, but Newcastle were high, and if Villa did beat that press, then you know the players would like full sprint to get back goal side of the ball, and that's kind of this a similar kind of work that Corran demands of his players. That if that press does get beaten, then you need to work really hard to get back. It's not just a case of oh, you jog back into position and you let the the players deeper deal with that attack. You you know you get back goal side and. Um, you defend as a team again. It's not just, yeah. It's kind of more playing as a team rather than just as individuals.
2: Absolutely. And I'm, I mean, just, uh, just going on from there, uh, Pete. You, you mentioned well, just quickly on Sarmiento before we move on to to Connor Townsend. Uh, I mean, uh, I think, I think it is a fitness thing. To be fair to him, he tried to, he tried to defend and uh, and create the press. I, I'll be honest, I don't think he's very good at it um that that aspect of his game i'm not sure it's necessarily a strength of his he seemed to sort of like wave at players almost as they went past but there was there was clearly a desire to do it what he's brilliant at and i've got to give him credit for this um because i loved this we were under all sorts of pressure at, at, right at the end of that game and he picked the ball up deep in the Albion half um at, uh, after we, I think it was yet another Swansea set piece that we'd just about managed to clear. And I'm thinking, please just carry this ball up the field. He took on like two, three Swansea players, drifted past them until one of them finally puts a hand on his shoulder and pulls him to the ground and we get a free kick way up the field. That was massive in terms of us winning the game that he got us up the field. And I have to say, Major worked hard in that aspect as well, because he won a couple of little free kicks towards the end. He shielded the ball. He got it. He used his body well to hold the ball up. And to be honest, I was saying this about Matt Phillips um, when, uh, when we were ahead, I was saying one of my problems at the moment is the ball wasn't sticking up front. Matt Phillips for all his qualities is not good at shielding the ball with his, with, with his back to goal. And I, th- I, I I thought Major did that really well when he came on. There's a lot more to come from the two new signings. And to be honest, the problem with coming onto onto the field of play, when your team's three 0 up as two attackers is that you're not really going to see what they can do in an attacking sense. Cause you're not, you're not going out there to score more goals. Although I think Major had one shot that was well blocked, but um but I think we've seen just glimpses of what they can bring. And uh, and the way Samiento drove us up the pitch, I think is probably something that nobody... Jed Wallace can do it a little bit, but I don't think anybody outside of Grady D in Ghana can do that in in our squad, Pete.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about Samiento. He seems to have this ability to, to just drive forward. And I mean, we saw it against Blackburn a couple of times as well, where he's just... He could just ride challenges as well. Um, so he's got that kind of that strength whilst he's running to to not be knocked off the ball too easily. Um, so it's a really useful ability to have, um, and he used it well against Swansea to, to get us forward and then win us the foul eventually as well. So, yeah, in terms of players with kind of the pace and ability to carry the ball forward like that, we yeah, you're probably right, we don't really have players like that. I think Jed Wallace often tries to do it. Um, but he's probably not quite quick enough to, to do it as effectively as Sarmiento. Angano, again probably tries, but he may be he's probably better dribbling in tight spaces than he is over long distances. Sarmiento seems to just get into a stride and that's when he's really strong at, at dribbling when he's got a lot of space to run into and
2: He's like one um, of those cars that you just want to get on an open road and uh, and really open it up, isn't he? Do you know what I mean? He's like it, it, it's like it, it's like um, if you want to go down with that metaphor, Grady D in Ghana is is like a nippy little city car, and Sarmiento is one of those ones that you want to take out to a country road and just and just open it up and watch it fly.
0: Yeah, exactly that. Um, Sarmiento, you know, when he's got that big space to drive into, he does it really well, and. And if he does come across a player, then he can take it around him and, and not really worry about him trying to, the opposition defender trying to pull him down on the way. Um, he just kind of powers through. Whereas Grady can just, you know, you can have two or three players within a really tight space and he'll, he'll somehow find a way to, to get out of it and get past them. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a different type of dribbling and ball carrying ability. I suppose that's, that is the difference. Grady, Diangana is a very good, good dribbler. Um, and can take players on in tight spaces. We've not really seen that from Sarmiento yet, so can't really say whether he can or not, whereas Samiente is a really good ball carrier where he can take the team up the pitch by just carrying it a really long distance and um and progressing it that way. So yeah, there's you know subtle differences between them, but um it's nice to have a player that can
1: can carry the ball as well as Sarmiento.
2: Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home, especially with Albion's home record under Carlos Corbran. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. Our participating restaurants, 18+, plus. serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Right, I've waited long enough, Pete. I want to talk about Townsend and Swift. That <laughs> we we uh, I've danced around it long enough, and I want I want to talk about the t- the two players that I'm I'm really really excited about their performances. Um, let's let's start off with uh, with Connor Townsend and the penalty. I mean, first of all, it is brilliant play by Swift. I'm going to say that he he just he waits and he waits and he waits to release that ball, and only really really good players can time that as beautifully as he did because most players rush that ball most players or, or they don't get the weight quite right. He knows just when to release that ball and just the weight to put on it to draw the challenge. And Townsend is clever enough to just nick it and go over the leg. But just Townsend's overall play, and he, he he came in for some stick after the Blackburn game and rightly so, although as you rightly pointed pointed out um on last week's pod, Kipre gave him a bit of a hospital pass um with the one that he controlled, even if he did make a a mistake controlling it. I thought he was tremendous yesterday, Connor Townsend. Most aerials won, which I think gets gets missed a lot. He had four shot creating actions, uh, which was second only to Swift. Two goal creating actions. Uh, obviously, he's won the penalty for the for the for the goal, and he's got the assist for for Gi's goal. So massive. He had the most progressive tackle, uh, most progressive carries in the team. He won all of his tackles. He drew more fouls than anybody else. And I want to dwell on that last point, Pete. How many blooming penalties? Has Connor Townsend won us now? And I, 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 and I know I texted you last night about this and we're actually, it's actually quite hard to find that data because for some reason they don't really carry data for the player fouled for a penalty. So it's, it, it, it is actually quite difficult, but just purely from a memory point of view, Pete, I can remember, I think like four penalties in the last six months. That Connor Townsend has won. I, I mean, we, we, and we haven't, we haven't even won that many penalties last season. I'm, I'm just looking now. We got, we got the, the penalty against Huddersfield. I think I'm right in saying Townsend won that. We got the, we, we got the penalty against Rotherham, and Townsend won that. There's the penalty against Sunderland. I'm trying to remember whether Townsend. Uh, Won uh, won that one. I think it might have been Wallace, and then the one against Swansea. Now, I think I uh, people will happily correct me if I'm wrong because that's the nature of um that's the nature of social media, and people are very quick to tell you when you're wrong. I think Connor Townsend has won ninety percent of the uh, of, uh, of of the penalties that we've uh, that we've actually earned over the last um uh, over uh, over the last couple of. Uh, couple of seasons, but certainly since, since Corbran came in anyway, I think it was a bit different under, um, uh, under Bruce because, because we weren't quite playing the same way. But I think since Corbran came in, I think Connor Townsend has won virtually all of our penalties. He's just a massive player for us, isn't he?
0: Yeah. I think it's all about the way that he he gets, gets forward and then gets inside the box as well. He loves to, to drive towards the byline and, Receive passes that are just kind of threaded between the centre back and the full back. And then when he gets beyond, beyond his full back around him, the full back maybe doesn't expect him to kind of get there. And, and then that's when he, he wins the foul. But he, yeah, he seems to have a really good ability of, of winning penalties. Um, I can remember one that he didn't win that's just for some reason that completely stuck in my mind. I think it was against Cardiff, um, the season before last. Under Ishmael went. I think it was one-one. They finished at home, and in the last minute, that was got...
2: the one that caused all the all the furor, uh, uh, the, the 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 crazy ruckus at the end of uh, end of the game, where two players got sent off. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Ta- uh, Johnston and um, uh, and Flint got sent off, didn't they? Because uh, I think Ishmael stormed on to have a go at the referee.
0: Yeah, that was it. Because he, I think Townsend, that one might have been a little bit soft if it was given from memory but he definitely had a, a hand on his shoulder as he went past the defender whether it was enough to actually pull him down but it's just yeah that ability to get in front of the defender in the box and I don't know whether he's just more alert or maybe he's faster than people give him credit for over a short distance and it, I think he just kind of surprises defenders and then it forces them to to make some silly challenges and and that wins us the penalty but it's yeah definitely a very useful skill to to have
2: yeah, because it's something that's in his general game, Pete, because it's not just in the penalty area. He wins a lot of fouls, doesn't he? Yeah,
0: and, and like I said, I don't know, maybe he's just very good with using his body. Um, it's something that we, we criticised him for after the Blackburn game when we conceded the first goal. We said that he, he probably didn't use his body well enough to get in front of the ball and and protect it, but the rest of the time he does seem to win a lot of fouls and it's probably to do with being able to shield the ball and nowhere defenders are coming from and where they're trying to tackle him from but you know it's I mean all over the pitch it's useful to be able to to win fouls but especially when you're driving into the penalty area and you win a foul out of well out of not 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 a too threatening position in, in comparison to the the penalty that you win.
2: Does it fly under the radar how good he is offensively Pete? I I think I don't know whether it flies under the radar how good he is defensively because I don't think it should. As I say, I think I think he is possibly the best one-on-one fullback in the division. I, uh, I, he just does not get beat one-on-one, and I, and I don't know whether that gets acknowledged. But I think because he doesn't go past people in a Ryan Manning style or something uh, something like that, I think people underestimate how much of an attacking threat he is. His progressive passing data is is absolutely fantastic. He's he's one of our best passers in in the team. He gets us up the field. He gets in the he gets in the penalty area. I, I I'm just I I know there still seems to be a bit of a narrative around Connor Townsend from some people. We need a new left back. We've we've I know we've said this before, so we're not going to spend a long time on it. But for me, Pete, I I think there's an argument to say we've got one of, if not the best, left back in the league?
0: Yeah, again, it's some someone that I've always been a fan of. Um and well, whenever I run the date or on fullbacks, he always he comes up as I mean, basically every season he comes up as one of the best, if not the best, fullbacks. Um, you know, he's very good on the ball. He he tends to always be very involved with possession. Um he wasn't so much against against Swansea, but on generally he's probably in most games, he completes like the highest number of passes for us and has the highest number of progressive passes. Um,
2: and he wins headers, which doesn't get said enough.
0: He wins headers. He wins his, his defensive duels. He, he drives into space quite well as well and usually has a few progressive carries. Um, and then he gets forward as well. He probably, I'd imagine he's he's up there with some of the highest ground cover because he, he gets forward so often and, and drives into the um, box and gets, gets that bar line for... For cutbacks or quite often to win penalties, as we've been discussing. Um, so he's he's really useful. To I mean, as a winger, he's probably a dream to have going past you, and for John Swift because they can just thread those balls inside of the fullback and you know that Townsend's willing to make that run. And you know when he gets there, he's a threat for for cutbacks or or just balls across the face of the goal. So yeah, I definitely don't think we need a, a replacement for him. Um, again backup might be needed but in terms of a starting left back I don't think you're going to get too many better than him in the championship. And let's
2: you mentioned John Swift there let's move on to him and it seems like uh, anybody who follows me on uh, on on Twitter first of all my sympathies to you but also um, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that it seems like I almost every week I have to Go onto a thread and either defend Connor Townsend or John Swift, and I know the the the, the narrative that is building is that Chris has favourite players and that they can't do any wrong in his eyes. That's I can assure you that's absolutely not the case. First of all, if a player starts playing badly, it doesn't change the fact for me that he's played well in the past. So it doesn't make me wrong about the fact that I've said the good things about them in the past. It just means that that player has. Started to play poorly, and that happens sometimes. And I will, I will openly admit that when I see that happen. But John Swift and Connor Townsend, are two of our most important players, and there was there was just a few people. And again, you know, I've said uh, uh, one one even uh, I I said, look, we will talk about this on on the pod. So I'm not uh, I'm not sort of digging somebody out uh, from social media because we had an open conversation, and I I respect the exchange of views. But um, they couldn't see really what Swift did that was so good yesterday. So I'd just like to highlight that. Three key passes, which is the most of any, uh, of any player. Now that might not seem like a lot. That is a lot in a game. Five shot creating actions. That is, that, that is huge. I mean, we we didn't, we didn't even have uh, that many shots. I think we had 11 shots in the whole game. So Swift's created five of them. He's got he's technically got two goal creating actions now first of all we only scored three goals but the 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 goal he hasn't got a goal creating action for is the corner despite the fact that he puts the corner in simply because goal uh, goal creating actions only go back two touches and because it's taken a couple of deflections there's two there's more than two touches since swift put the corner in but really that's 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 a bit of a quirk of the data he should have three goal creating actions he's won the header on the edge of the penalty area for the first goal which keeps the ball alive which is massive and it's exactly the sort of thing that john swift doesn't get credit for doing people because he's quite languid in the way he plays people like to label him as lazy and I keep saying his defensive data is not bad okay he does a lot of his work up the field in the final third but he blocks passes out of that uh, uh, the, the opposition tried to play up the field and he does things like that yesterday wins that header on the edge uh, edge of the box he's then as i say played a very clever ball for the penalty area and he delivers the corner for the second so he's created all three goals in in some respect five progressive passes which is the most um he had most touches in the attacking penalty area of any albion player and he had the best pass completion rate of uh, of any player who wasn't a centre-half yesterday. So he uses the ball well as well. Was it a vintage John Swift performance yesterday over the course of the 90 minutes? Perhaps not. But then the team selection dictated that it was never going to be because we played without a nine. So there's nobody for John Swift to thread balls through to. There's nobody for him to whip when he when he drifts into wide areas to deliver pe- balls into the penalty area. But I tell you what, where John Swift can influence the game, he absolutely does. He is massive for us. And he has had an enormous hand in all three goals. Let me make it perfectly clear. If John Swift does not play yesterday, we almost certainly do not win that game. Because there isn't anybody else in the Albion squad who can do the things that john swift did yesterday okay somebody else could have won that header on the edge of the penalty area but nobody else has that patience to delay that pass to connor townsend for the penalty uh, for the penalty nobody else nobody else delivers a a corner with the accuracy for okay we get some luck afterwards but you've got to get it to furlong in the first place i think he was absolutely mammoth for us yesterday Pete and as I say we will admit where players are off it we criticized John Swift after Blackburn we said he was miles off the pace and we stand by that when he came on against Blackburn now I don't I don't know what the reasons were for that whether whether he was left out because Corbram was was seeing that he wasn't uh, he wasn't fit that he wasn't Happy with the fact that he was left on the bench and therefore didn't come onto the onto the p- pitch in 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 the right state of mind. Whether or whether w- whether or not um, he just struggled to get up to the pace of the game after coming on as a substitute. What it was, but he was miles off it at Blackburn. They're all speculative. N- uh, any of those could be true. None of them could be true. But yesterday was back to the John Swift that I felt we saw so often week in, week out, after Corbran came in last season, Pete. And I would, I would say, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, that more often than not, almost everything good we do going forward goes through John Swift. Week in, week out, John Swift is the single most creative player in the Albion team. He is the one who makes things happen for us. And generally speaking, when we win games, when we score goals, it's because John Swift has done the right things at the right moments. And no, you can't expect John Swift to be Kevin De Bruyne and every time he gets the ball, play the perfect pass. He also hasn't got Erling Haaland running on ahead of him, which doesn't help. You know, uh, uh, I'm not saying whether if he did, whether he'd be playing De Bruyne-esque passes, that's not what I'm saying. But my point is, I think some people expect John Swift to be this like almost, I think they expect him to be Matias Pereira. I think that's what they expect. I think that's the problem here. I think we got spoiled with Matias Pereira, player who I don't even understand why he was in this division. He's just miles too good. I can't believe that a Premier League club didn't take him when we wanted to sell him. And I can't believe he hasn't gone uh, he hasn't got picked up by a Premier League club since. Um maybe he's his overriding desire is to is is to uh, is to uh, was to go and earn the money, which which he obviously did, and then perhaps his overriding desire. I think he's gone back to Brazil now, is to is to go back to Brazil. That's fair enough. That's his career choices, and I respect that. But he's a Premier League footballer, and you can't hold John Swift to the standards of a Premier League footballer because the reality is John Swift has never been a Premier League footballer. But I tell you what, he is. He is an outstanding championship number ten, and Pete, I think we're extremely lucky to have him.
0: Yeah, he's a brilliant player. Against Swansea, he had our highest expected threat um, quite comfortably. I think he was at you know about 0.45, and the next highest was Darnell Furlong at about 0.3. So he was you know moving the ball into dangerous areas. Um, I think it was three passes into the three passes into the penalty area. I'd got him as four progressive passes, you know, so he's he's moving the ball up the pitch. He's also moving the ball into, you know, into the final third, into the penalty area, into dangerous areas. And he does that regularly. Um, when he's on the pitch, he tends to be at the top or towards the top of those uh, metrics. So he's always one of our most creative players. Like you say, a, a lot of good things that we do in terms of going forward goes through John Swift. And yeah, he probably is unfairly compared to, Pereira, who was just an unbelievable player in this division. Um and I mean even in the Premier League he was he was very, very good. So it's probably a bit a bit harsh on Swift to compare him to him. But what Swift does is is also very good. Um and I think if we can get him to play consistently um through the season, then you imagine that he's gonna to be towards the top of of metrics like goals plus assists because he, he gets goals himself, he creates chances, so he's gonna get the assists as well. So um, I think he's a very valuable player to have in this division um, and at the minute maybe he is a little bit underrated from a lot of the Albion fans that you see on Twitter um,
2: Do you think it's his style of play? I mean we, we uh, I remember, I go back to my days at the club uh, Pete and when I used to run the Albion Twitter account and uh, and therefore used to see every reply that came in and because Chris Brunt had a languid style of play we we uh, uh, we had we had an issue where people were saying he was lazy and i actually had our performance analyst come up to me with the data sheets and go here's the gps data for Brunty. you can put this out if you like because he covers more ground than any other player i i feel like i feel like players who play in a certain style can quite easily get labeled a certain way and i think i think john swift is he's a languid and elegant footballer for me he's absolutely 100% not lazy but i think people can mistake almost playing the game with an ease as laziness and i i don't i don't think john swift should apologize for 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 being able to at times make the game look easy which i think he does
0: yeah it's quite quite often very easy to to judge a player by how they look on the pitch rather than what they actually do and I don't think he'd be getting into the into the side if he was lazy because Corbran demands so much from his players defensively that if he did have a player that he considers to be lazy and not putting in enough effort then I think he would just take him out and bring in a different player. Um so I think that says a lot for for the work that John Swift does do off the ball. Um he's probably not the most um probably doesn't cover the most ground in the side but I do think he does his fair share and and when we're pressing he does it he does it well as well. He does, you can press with tons of energy and just kind of charge around like a headless chicken. And, you know, that would be great for people that are does, just looking does at it. That,
2: does that get overvalued by supporters sometimes, Pete? Let, let's, let, let's be honest. I've seen it in the, in the past. Uh, I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, I remember Roy Hodgson, like, he hated that. He hated when he saw that on a pitch. Players running almost to, like, convince the fans to a certain degree, but not running with any intelligence.
0: Well, exactly. I'd I'd much rather have a player that actually presses in an intelligent way, but probably covers a little bit less ground than somebody that's just running around like a headless chicken and, and forcing the team out of shape because he's not pressing with any cohesion with his teammates. So yeah, you've got to be smart about when you are running and there's no point just, just chasing around after the ball because it's going to impact the rest of the, the rest of your side's shape and, ability to actually press. So I think when John Swift does do his defensive work, he's quite intelligent with it. Um and like I say, if he was if he was lazy, then I'm sure it's something that Corbran would be picking up on and I don't think he'd be allowing it in his side.
2: Quiz question for you, Pete. I'm gonna put you on the spot. When did John Swift last miss a penalty?
0: I've got no idea. I'm gonna guess it's a trick question and he never has.
2: <laughs> it's not a trick question. He hasn't missed a penalty since the first one he took January 2017. Wow. And that, that for me gets undervalued. How many penalties have we missed? Big penalties have we missed over, over the last, the last few seasons? How many times have West Bromwich Albion players stepped up and you have had no confidence whatsoever. In them bagging the penalty, in them putting that ball in the back of the net. I mean, you know, you go back to, um, the, the season that was Ishmael Bruce, Carl and Grant puts away that penalty in the last minute against Coventry. And we actually still have a mathematical chance of, uh, of playoffs. So we've missed big penalties at big times in games. Now. I say this touch wood. I t- I'm literally touching wood while while I while I say this because I don't want him to go and miss his next one. But John Swift has scored seven penalties in a row across West Bromwich Albion and Reading. That's not to be sniffed at. I know I know penalties are depending on which data provider you use between 0.7 and 0.8 chance of scoring. So seven out of ten or eight out of ten penalties get. Um, uh, get scored. Well, unless John Swift misses his next three, which again, touch wood, I hope he doesn't. He's he's ahead of that data. He's miles ahead of that data. He's scoring at a mu- I mean, he's scoring at a much better rate than that. And penalties are huge uh, for us. I mean, we 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 won. Um, he he scored for us uh, three penalties last season. Three. I mean, one of them won us the game against uh, against Huddersfield. Unfortunately, the other two did end in defeats against um, uh, against Rotherham and Sunderland. But I mean, you, you can't blame John Swift for that. We don't win that game yesterday if John Swift doesn't t- took that penalty away. I think that gets understated how big it is having a player who steps up to the penalty spot and you feel like feel like you can trust them, Pete.
0: Yeah, it's it's really important. Um I just got the data up now and I thought it was quite interesting about the one that he did miss about who who it was taken against and it was a A former Albion player in David Button, who I think actually had quite a good record with saving penalties. Um,
2: oh my goodness! I didn't. Uh, I've actually I've got the same date as you because I presume you've got transfer marked up, and I, I and I hadn't even spotted that it was Button that saved uh, that saved the penalty. That is that is a mad quirk that the only penalty John Swift has ever missed in in his entire career was saved by David Button.
0: Yeah, it was interesting little little thing isn't it Um,
2: (laughs) that is that's that's crazy
0: but yeah I mean obviously it's important having somebody that can can tuck him away and he's doing it at a very good rate hopefully it can continue and he's he's in fact a a very good penalty taker rather than just being on the on the right end of a bit of variance on a small sample size Um, I mean for anyone that hasn't already listened to it we had uh, Nathan Ellington on over the summer and he was talking about his penalty um record and and his technique and it was really interesting um to hear how he took them and obviously he was a brilliant penalty taker and um had a great record and it's just so valuable having um somebody in your side that you can rely on to basically almost always tuck them away and I mean obviously getting a penalty is a really high a high value chance and you you're more than likely more likely than not to score but to have somebody that can just kind of increase your odds a little bit is just, yeah, it's just very important.
2: Right. Let's move on to the last twenty minutes, Pete. What on earth went wrong? I, I think for me there is there's two because as I say, it's crazy to look at to look at the numbers and and what because what you see is that is that Swansea did absolutely nothing really up to that point, and then all of a sudden they start having. Chance after chance with, uh, with, with high XG. They, they had five chances of over 0.08 having had just one before that. There's one amazing save in there from Palmer on 77 minutes from Wood Gordon, which uh, had a post shot expected goals of 0.58. Just to explain that data, if you don't understand what I mean by that is the, um, XG measures the value of the, uh, of the shot. Um, based on where it was taken from post shot expected goals basically uh, uh, measures the likelihood that the goalkeeper should have um, should have saved it on the quality of the shot. So it actually measures the quality of the shot, whereas XG doesn't uh, doesn't do that. And. Um, and basically it says that six times out of ten that ball would have gone past past palmer it, it's a, it's a great great save that he's made um that was at three one but it would have given it it would have given Swansea more time to have gone and got got the equalizer if that if that had gone in. Why did we suddenly start suffering Pete i mean there does seem to, obviously the substitutions happened Yukoslu is a huge aerial presence for us. Um and him going off I imagine was some sort of a factor and we also have to look at the other side of it and say Swansea brought Charlie Patino on and his delivery from set plays was just phenomenal I mean if only there had been a podcast that had urged Albion to sign him on loan from Arsenal then maybe we would have looked at him too but um were there any other factors in there or was it as simple as Corbrand brought some players off, we lost our shape and some of our aerial ability and they brought an incredible delivery of set plays onto the field?
0: Yeah, well, it was all set plays, wasn't it? Um, I think all the shots and chances that they created in those last 20 minutes were from from set pieces, from corners or free kicks. So it wasn't a case of us being more open, just in open play. I think he did begin to dominate the ball a bit more and move, move the ball into more dangerous areas in the last 20 minutes, but they didn't create any chances from it All the chances that they created were from were from set pieces. So it was probably a case of them getting more set pieces and obviously taking your off is going to be a negative because he's he's very strong in the air. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, you'd assume bringing Bartley on would be a positive in terms of area... Aerial ability because he's probably our strongest defender for it. Um, I don't know if maybe the pressure kind the, of just...
2: the, the Bartley thing was a bit of a, it w- was a panic though at three two. Pete, I mean he he threw he threw Bartley on because it was all going to hell in a handbasket. To be honest with you, um, it, it, it was like. As the second goal went in, you, you almost saw him throw Bartley uh, off the bench and get your, get, your, get your boots on, get your top off, get on that pitch. Because, it, 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 I mean, it was, we we were going, I mean, we, we were at worst if he hadn't thrown him on, going to draw that game. I I actually think there was enough time left for us to have lost it.
0: Yeah, I suppose the Bartley substitution was kind of more after. Um, it was after the two goals had gone in, so it, but then... I guess that's a positive of Bartley as well, as you do have, even if we're not going to play him, you've got a centre-back on the bench that is very strong in the air. And if you are under a lot of pressure from it, from kind of set pieces and just aerial challenges, duels, then you can bring on on Bartley and hopefully he can steady the ship a bit. But yeah, I don't know if the pressure maybe just got to us a little bit, especially after conceding the first one. And the fact that Swansea were having a lot more of the ball and and we're looking a little bit more threatening in terms of in terms of the set pieces. So yeah, I suppose probably a bit of pressure building. Um and maybe it didn't help that we'd not got a win yet this season. I know we've only had two two games if you count the cup game, but hopefully it felt get...
2: like there was a lot of pressure on that game on on Saturday though, Pete, didn't it? Because it, it felt like Everything it, it felt like everything was building up around the club to a bit of a critical mass again. You know, losing at Blackburn, then losing in 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 the League Cup, Corbrand not being particularly happy with the transfer activity. Um, You know, fans were getting getting upset. We, we'll come on to the Chalaba thing as well, which which which, uh, which builds to uh, add, adds to the sort of negative feeling around the club. It felt like. It felt like we were potentially on the verge of a, the atmosphere that we we experienced around around Val, almost to a degree where everything was going to kick off. It 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 felt like it it felt like a powder keg that only needed a light to uh, to ignite it. And actually, that game has has flipped a lot of that for me. But uh, but it, if if it had gone the other way, I think I think the feeling today would be incredibly negative uh, as we record on, on Sunday afternoon.
0: Well, yeah, there's there's a lot going on with the club and I think every fan kind of recognises that this is probably our last chance of, of getting promotion to the Premier League and kind of putting off the financial difficulties for a little bit longer. Um, and despite, I think, the general consensus is that we're not going to get promoted this season, I think everyone's probably still got that little bit of hope and knows that we do need to start picking up results. I know it's really early in the season um and you can't really worry about it yet, but you still feel the pressure as a fan that you do need to start getting some points on the board and winning games if you are going to be up towards the top of the table. So I think there's kind of just a lot of aspects that were were kind of building that pressure. And and yeah, it probably leaked out onto the players a little bit on the p- pitch towards the end when we were coming under pressure from Swansea as well. So yeah, I'm just glad that we, we could kind of get through it in the end and, and get the win.
2: I mentioned Chalabah briefly there, Pete, and uh, unfortunately I'm going to, I'm going to largely end today on a, on a bit of a negative point. I'm, I, but I don't feel like there's any way of not talking about this. Now, most people will have seen Chalabah's apology in the week, and he should apologize for for what he did, what he did at Stoke. Um, He, 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 he gestured towards the crowd. It's not acceptable. And, players whatever you know within reason if things are being said to them as long as they uh, you know they they don't cross a line into obviously think things that that are just utterly unacceptable like racism and things like that then you know a, a bit of stick that is not in in in, in those in those realms is a part of the game to a certain degree. Whether it should be or whether it shouldn't be is is a whole different debate. But it is, and I think players can't can't be reacting on the pitch. I accept that. However, what I would say is what Chalaba has experienced over the last probably uh, week or so goes way beyond a bit of stick. I think some of the some of the abuse he's uh, that has been directed his way on social media has been unacceptable. He was singled out by some people as one of the worst players at Blackburn. That is not reflected in what I saw at all. I thought actually he had a decent game against Blackburn and we got a lot worse when he went off the pitch. So I don't really understand why he was scapegoated by some for that uh, for that defeat just because th- they didn't want him in the starting 11 when it was announced. Chalopa's performance justified his selection for me. So that's the first point I, I would make on that. But also, there seems to be this concept with some that players don't read social media. Well, yes, I've worked with a lot of players. Yes, they do. They're aware of what's being said about them. What Chalibur did at Stoke, I'm going to reiterate, is not acceptable. I do not cond- condone what Chalibur did at Stoke at all. But... He has apologised and he has admitted what he did was unacceptable. So he's owned his mistake and he has apologised for his mistake. On top of that, we have to accept that people are human beings and that there is only so much abuse that one person can take before it overwhelms us and it overwhelms our decision-making. Not an excuse, not a justification for Chalabah, but just an explanation of that. I was just ho- the reason I'm talking about all this is because I was horribly disappointed at a minority, and I strongly emphasise it was a minority who booed Chalabar onto the pitch yesterday. We're three nil up in a football match. A guy is coming onto the pitch who, yes, he made a mistake in midweek, but he has apologised, he has owned his mistake, and he has he has said he is sorry. And he is wearing our shirt. He is coming onto the pitch to try and help our team, and he gets booed by a small section, and it was a small section of his own supporters. Pete, I don't know what you think, but that is just wholly, wholly unacceptable to me and i i i I just don't really understand what went through the people who booed Challaers mind he made a mistake we've all we've all been overwhelmed by emotion in a moment and we have done something that we should not have done but I think most of us like to think as long as what we did wasn't too egregious and let's be honest what Chalipa did was wrong but it wasn't you know he he wasn't violent he made a gesture he shouldn't have done it but it wasn't it's not the end of the world. An apology is enough for what he did. Owning your mistake is enough. I would like to think that if I was in that situation, if I was overwhelmed with emotion and I uh, I felt I was being abused, singled out and I made a mistake and made an offensive gesture that I should not make. I would like to think that if I own that mistake and apologise for that mistake, that that would be sufficient in most people's eyes. And in all fairness, it was sufficient in most people's eyes because, as I say, the people who booed him on Saturday were in the minority. But nonetheless, the fact that that happened, the fact that one of the players wearing our shirt, trying to help our football team to win a football game, was booed onto the pitch at the Hawthorns. By our own, by some, a small minority of our own supporters, it really upsets me, Pete.
0: Yeah, obviously Chalobah made a mistake. Supporters were getting frustrated with him, and he showed his frustration back. But as he says, it's not the end of the world. In some senses, you can see understand why. Then supporters were frustrated with him against Swansea. They showed that in the booing. But I I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's necessary. Um Chalabra already apologised and said that he'd made a mistake. Um, you know, so much spotlight is put on the players that anything they do will be, you know, analysed in great detail and held against them. Hopefully, it's that's all that's sorted with now. The supporters that were booing have showed their frustration. I, I just hope they don't carry on doing that every time that he plays because he's an Albion player Um He's still putting everything in on the pitch. Um, it's not and, like he's And I would balls. like to
2: say as well, he it wasn't like his touches were booed, which I understand they were against against Stoke, but I kind of understand the reasons for that. He hadn't apologised at that point. I still don't like it particularly, but I understand that more. Uh, but it's not like he was he was booed when he touched the ball, and he was applauded off at the end, as you say, Pete. I really hope it's the end of it.
0: Yeah, hopefully it was just. Just that one boon as he came on that, that's the frustration's out of the system and that we can now move on and both parties can move on, we can get on with the rest of his Albion career without any any issues there, because I I really don't think it's something to hold against the player for their their whole stint at the Albion.
2: And it doesn't help it doesn't help anyone, does it? Because at the end of the day he's coming onto the pitch to try and help the team. So creating a negative atmosphere against one of your own players isn't isn't actually gonna help the team achieve the best results I think if you you, even if you even if you dislike continue to dislike Chalaber, I would imagine if you're sat there in one of the West Bromwich Albion ends you're sat there because you care deeply about the football club and if you care deeply about the football club you want it to win and I don't think booing Chalaber helps us achieve that aim does it?
0: No definitely not it can't you know it can't feel good for him coming onto the pitch and hearing him being booed and it can't put you in the frame of mind that you want to put all, everything into to then getting the three points that the, the supporters that are doing are going to celebrate after the game. So, yeah, it can't be helpful. Um, and it's not as if that, you know, he's not trying, he's not putting in the effort. It was just a moment of frustration. So, yeah, I don't think it's... I personally don't think it's something to, you know, get too wound up about. Um, and hopefully that's passed and we can just move on in the future.
2: Absolutely, and in terms of moving on in the future, we will be moving on to Leeds United on Friday night, um, and Pete and I will be back to talk about that game after it has occurred. Hopefully, Albion can carry this positive moment and this positive form, and Managed to turn their away form, which we discussed last week in in the Blackburn pod, which has not been good. But hopefully, we can go to Leeds United, who've got their own problems, players refusing to play and everything, everything like that. I know Pete, you've uh, you've done a a Leeds preview uh, pod this morning, just uh, just very briefly, because you've just had a, a, a it's it's interesting because you've just had a chat coming straight here after talking to a Leeds United podder um how are they feeling ahead of that uh, ahead of that game because obviously they've got a little bit of turmoil um looks like Nonto and uh, Sinistera didn't want to play for them yesterday Daniel Farker sort of dodged those questions in the post match interview but i mean unless something dr- drastically changes you wouldn't expect those two to be involved against us on on friday night how are Leeds feeling about um, their start to the season because hasn't been probably hasn't been quite what the uh, what what they wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, I was thinking to um, the old stats, aren't we, Pod? And I mean, they were basically saying that they're expecting both Nonto and I've forgotten his name now. Sinistera. Yeah, Sinistera, that's it. Yep, Sinistera to to move on. Um, he was saying that reading between the lines from what's been said, it sounds like Sinistera doesn't want to play because he's he doesn't want to get injured and. He thinks that there's a move on the card. So I think, yeah, we both kind of agreed that it's probably the perfect time to play Leeds because of this kind of unrest behind the scenes and having a few players that don't want to play, but having not replaced them yet. They might be slightly short on numbers. Um, you know, he was saying that, you know, they're still in need of a a central midfielder because they've currently got, I think, 18 year old Archie Gray playing. And despite him playing well, it's, you know, it's, a big well, to... well,
2: Tyler Adams had his um, uh, his release clause triggered by Chelsea and then because they look like they're getting Caicedo, they've decided not to sign him. So that's you know another player that's not really being involved with them despite being on their books.
0: Yeah, and we spoke about that as well. And Dan was saying that he still expects him to go to a Premier League club. Um, and he's not too upset about that one because he's more of a, he does his best work without the ball. He's better at kind of winning the ball back than, than having the ball at his feet. And he expects Leeds to be a, a very possession dominant side this season. So you want players that are good with the ball at the feet rather than without the ball. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we'll probably see Leeds dominate possession and Albion are probably, you know, look to, to break on them quickly and, and create chances that way rather than looking to keep the ball for the whole 19 minutes. But, yeah, I think it could be a very interesting game.
2: I mean, just to say to completely finish off, Pete, um, on the division as a whole, we're sat here on on Sunday morning, uh, or well, we it was <laughs> it was Sunday morning when we started. It slipped into Sunday afternoon, as uh, given how long we've talked for. But um, we're sat here, and every one of the twenty four teams has played two games. Only two out of the whole twenty four have maximum points after two games, Leicester and Ipswich. I mean, it just it is shaping up to be an even division, a mad championship season, an unpredictable championship season. Basically, it it's shaping up to be a very championshipy championship season, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and they tend to be very championshipy these championship seasons. Um, you know, I suppose that's what makes it exciting that so often they're really tight going into the last even into the last game of the season, you have usually got four or five teams fighting for that for the playoff spots. So, um, yeah, hopefully it's this season, and hopefully Albion can be on the right end of it come the end of the season.
2: Well, we shall see. And we move on to Leeds United. We will be back after that game to give you our thoughts on the uh, trip to Elland Road. So please join us then. But until then, thanks for listening, and of the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? Our participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.